Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. I'm here with my good buddy, Doug Casey, and we're just in the middle of talking about Medellin. So I said, Doug, let's go ahead and go live now. We're running a little bit late. We'll get on there and we'll talk to the Rebel Capitals community and I'll give them all the insights and the details. We're going to get into a lot more than that. We're going to talk about Argentina. Let me look at my list here, Doug. I want to talk to you about freedom censorship. I'll talk to you about crisis investing, uh, a lot of different topics because we haven't had the, the chance to um, to talk in, in quite some time. But first, going into Medellin, I mean, the weather's fantastic. The people are great. The cost of living is very, very low. And I started coming here in 2014 just as an investment opportunity. Because back then, Doug, if you remember, the price of oil was under $30 a barrel. So I retired in 2012, and I, I didn't know anything about investing. I didn't know what the Fed was, nothing. But I knew that I wanted to manage my own money. So as I learned more and more and more, I got involved with real estate, by the way, in 2012. And uh, so I, I knew that I wanted to go long oil, but I didn't know how to do it. And I knew the Colombian peso was loosely tied to oil because it's their main export. And so I thought if I could buy assets denominated in pesos, that would be a roundabout way of playing oil. And the only thing that I knew about at the time was real estate. So I started buying real estate here in Medellin. And uh, I thought, okay, great. If I do well on the real estate, plus I do well on the currency, you get kind of a, a double pop. But the more time that I spent here, the more I enjoyed it from a personal standpoint. The people, the culture, the food, the freedom, the cost of living, the weather, your three-hour flight from Miami. So I, I just ended up, I ended up coming here initially for the investment, but I ended up staying for all the personal reasons. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me, George. Uh, I think I first went to Columbia in, um, when did I go? Probably 1979, something like that. And uh, it was a, a spooky place back then. Did you go to uh, Bogota? Yes, exactly. Uh, the State Department was putting out uh, advisories and so forth. And mostly these advisories that they put out are hysterical and they're bullshit. And they right. should be uh, disregarded. But uh, I did sense, uh, yes, yes, it, it was a potentially dangerous city. Uh, and I went back a number, I've probably been to Columbia half a dozen times since then, out in the boondocks and all this type of thing. And uh, yeah, I guess I got a few interesting Columbia stories. And I'm currently involved in a, a gold mining deal in Columbia. So... Anyway, it's a great country. Uh, well, all those South American countries are quite different from each other. Quite different. All of them are. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about Argentina. Big news. I know you've been boots on the ground there for quite some time. Yes. So I I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, uh, having been involved in Argentina, starting... Uh, hmm, when did I first go to Argentina? God, this all fades into the mists of history, but a long time ago, uh, quite frankly. And um, uh, it's nothing to be proud of because uh, people warned me that a gringo that gets involved in Argentina or Brazil or anywhere is going to get his head handed to him. And by God, it was true. But I was slow to learn and... Uh, 
I liked Argentina in particular because it is the most Western-looking, outward-looking, uh, international-looking of all the South American countries. It's the most yeah. European of them, with the exception of Uruguay, of course, which is just across the plate liver, river, very similar. So, uh, I don't know, I wound up, talk about real estate, uh, I guess I wound up buying, partially on my own, partially with uh, a number of friends. We bought, how much do we buy? I don't know, 200,000 hectares of land in Argentina. Way too much and way too early. Give you an example about Argentina. You want to hear a Star-Spangled War story? Uh, in uh, in 2007, uh, after they had one of their totally disastrous meltdowns in uh, in around 2001 or something like that, when it looked like a neutron bomb had gone off over Buenos Aires, and I'm not kidding, I flew into Buenos Aires one time back then. And there were no cars on the streets, nothing. It was a runaway inflation. I went to the best hotel I, I, I like, the Four Seasons, and I wanted to change a $100 bill, get some small change to tip cab, cab drivers and such. And they couldn't even change a $100 bill for me because the, they had nothing in their box for guests. I mean, it was unbelievable. So I wound up buying an apartment in BA, uh, we want to talk a little bit about real estate. Uh, 5,000 square foot apartment, two-story penthouse in one of the best buildings in the Recoleta with only six six apartments in the building, 24 hours, security. fantastic building. Uh, I paid $950,000 for that apartment. In New York, it would have cost $20 million. Easy, maybe more. I don't know how much more. Yeah, and... Um, so what is that apartment worth today, or at least before Millet's election? Guess that I paid nine fifty four. What year? Two thousand seven. Two thousand seven. I uh, nine fifty. I'd say three million. Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But uh, I could get uh, about a million for it today. A million. Yeah, but in real terms because the dollar has lost 40% or so of its value, 50% since then. I yeah. really lost half my money. Huh. So, But on the other hand, I'm glad I did it, because it's been a great base to have in BA, and you know, you got to live somewhere, and I've lived there a lot, so there's costs for these things. People don't Just, just out of curiosity, Doug, why, did the, why do you think the price didn't go up with the rate of at least dollar depreciation? relative to goods and services in the United States. Because what I've experienced in Colombia is, especially in times of higher rates of inflation, people take every single currency unit they have and put it into either dollars or real estate. So like in Venezuela, you know, the higher the inflation gets, the higher the real estate values go, adjusted for um, uh, in dollar terms not just for the local currency. So that didn't play out in, in BA, huh? Well, I'm not sure it's played out that well in Venezuela either, quite frankly, because it's so chaotic there and the crime is so high in Caracas 
Yeah. yeah, it seems that when when the when the inflation really starts, when it starts ramping up, that's when you see the real estate appreciate quite substantially, even in dollar terms. But to your point, once it gets to a level where you see society breaking down, then the prices just completely plummet uh, in 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 terms of any currency. Yeah, I, I mean, at some point, uh, buying things in Venezuela is going to be. It's going to be a fantastic speculation, but you know who knows what the prices are because you can't even get good title there at this point, and it's just right. it's just chaos. Like estancias have had all their cattle stolen from them, and it's 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 just perfectly horrible in Venezuela. Now, anyway, in Argentina, uh, it's not like that at all. But uh, Argentines that have money get it out of Argentina, quite frankly. I mean, you've got us, the way Argentina is a lot like ancient Rome. You have an apartment in Buenos Aires and you have your estancia out in the provinces and uh, the way the ancient Romans used to do it. Yeah, here they call it a finca. Yes, yes, I guess that's, 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 that's right. All these different countries have different names for your farm or whatever. But um, answer the question. Yeah, finally, uh, that apartment, which, and of course, New York real estate is getting a lot softer, I think. The bubble's breaking there. Yeah. That apartment, if I could magically transplant the building and the apartment to the Upper East Side of New York, oh, I don't know, 20, 25 million, easy. Yeah, I, I see that here quite often as well. So what do you think about the election? What do you think about melee? This is one of the biggest things in world political history. I mean, it is absolutely amazing and incredible and fantastic. Uh, and I could tell you a story about how Malay first started identifying himself as an anarcho-capitalist. And this is why it is unique in world history. This is not just a question of a, you know, a good-hearted conservative somehow being elected. Well, mm. Mockley, the previous president, oh, was um, a good-hearted, well-intentioned conservative. And he did what conservatives stupidly always do. You know, they, you know, make a few adjustments around the edges and they, you know, build some new roads and clean the place up and, and fill the treasury. And... Then, of course, the paradise take over again, and we got a full treasury. Happy days are here again, dispensing freebies to the public and so forth. But finally, the wheels have cyclically uh, fallen off the Argentine bus, and uh, it's a serious crisis down there now, same as it was last serious crisis uh, back in 2000 or so, where they totally destroyed the currency. So Millet identifies as an anarcho-capitalist. This has never, ever before happened anywhere. That somebody says the government itself is an evil and destructive institution that should be abolished. That's, how can you run for office saying you want to abolish the government? I mean, this is right. very unusual. And Millet is an ideological ANCAP. I mean, he's very familiar with all the writings of Mises and Hayek and Rothbard, 
even names his dogs after these things. He's entirely sincere, and he's going to eliminate, not just cut back, not just trim agencies, but eliminate them and fire their workers. This is radical. And the average Argentine may not understand anything about free market economics and libertarian philosophy, but he understands that he's been ripped off for decades and lied to for many decades. And there, and it's the young people and the poor people that vote yeah. Millet. Right. So I'm up. I'm optimistic. It's going to be a. It's going to be a real change finally in Argentina. Are his views comparable to Ron Paul? Oh, they go beyond Ron Paul, way beyond Ron Paul. Ron Ron never identifies as an anarchist, and Millet does, and he's he's radical and sincere about it. Oh, there's there's no question about this. Uh, my own involvement, I've got lots of uh, friends that are very well connected with Millet. I've never met him personally, because my Spanish, shameful to say, is marginal, and his English is marginal. Yeah, yeah. Well, same Yeah, so. But uh, years ago, uh, in San Martín de los Andes, which was where I bought the first piece of Argentine real estate back in, uh, I don't know, 20-some years ago, uh, a really beautiful 2,500-acre uh, uh, piece of land, well-located with four lakes and two rivers, and it's just great. So I bought that. Uh, and um, the guy that made it happen, uh, Jorge Truco, was a is a good guy, and he was philosophically oriented. So we used to go out and talk philosophy every night. And I said, Jorge, look, what you really need to do is you need to read a book. It's called The Market for Liberty by Morris and Linda Tannehill. And amazingly, usually you recommend a book to somebody, and I say, oh, good, I'll think about it. Well, not only does he buy the damn book, but he reads it. And it changed his entire political thought process. And he he goes further. He translates it into Spanish and has it published in Argentina and gives a copy to Malay. And I'd written the forward. Wow. I'd written the forward. What year was that, Doug? Ah, uh, Jesus. When Jorge did that. I'm trying to think back. When did he give a copy to Malay? I don't know. When did he publish it? I'm, 2010, I'm guessing. Okay. And at that point, Malay said, I'm an anarchist, and he started calling himself an ANCAP because of the book. So I, when Jorge told me this, I said, well, it sounds to me, Jorge, like we're going to have lunch at the Casa Rosada soon. And Jorge said, no, I don't think so, because Millet doesn't believe in free lunches. So, <laughs> well, this is a big deal. So, I would say that uh, at some point very soon, now's a good time to buy Argentine um, an Argentine ETF, or if you want to, go to Argentina. Look, things are cheap in Colombia. They're not as cheap as Argentina. I'll tell you how cheap they are. Yeah, I'm not down there. Right. I'll be down there a week, but. Uh, uh, right now, because I talk to people down there, you go to a very nice restaurant, 
and have a very nice meal in a top quality restaurant with all the trimmings. You know, it'll cost you for two people, 15 bucks. Yeah. I mean, that's like free. Yeah. This happens cyclically in Argentina, but now's one of those times. So now's a good time to go down there and buy real estate and buy an ETF for Argentine stocks because I think the same thing is going to happen. This happened when Pinochet took over Chile and totally reformed it from being just a, a, a backwater that had copper mines and a nice climate. And uh, the stock market doubled and doubled and doubled and doubled and redoubled again. Same thing's going to happen in Argentina with any luck. Yeah, I've heard that also from Brent Johnson. Remember Brent? I know you, you've met him a few times. You met him at my event, uh, I think, last year. Yeah. But okay. he, but he's with Santiago Capital. And uh, he came here with his wife and son. This was maybe nine months ago. And we hung out for a few days. And uh, about two months afterwards, or maybe about three or four months afterwards, he went to Argentina. And that's what he said. He goes, I can't even believe it. It's it's cheaper than it is in Medellin, Colombia. And that's saying a lot. Oh, yeah. No, things are free in Argentina right now. So it's wonderful. So I'll be down there. And then I'm going to um, stay in the apartment BA for a couple of weeks and then go across the Plate River to um, Uruguay, which is a very different place, uh, but very nice. And so Uruguay, you, is the most Uruguay is the most expensive country. In Latin America, by far, by huh. far. It's really expensive in Uruguay. Much more expensive than the U.S., quite frankly. It's like New York City. I don't know so, if people live in Uruguay. Do, do you think, do you see this as a very positive sign for the freedom and, and free market capitalism movement globally, or do you look at it as though you know, this is rather unfortunate that things need to get this bad before people start voting for freedom, liberty, and free market capitalism. Yeah, well, unfortunately, the entire world has been, from a, the point of view of personal freedom, individual liberty, that type of thing, has been going downhill for many, many years in the U.S., it's been going downhill since at least the Teddy Roosevelt administration, as charming as he was in many other ways. So uh, I'm very pessimistic about the future. Yes, technology is wonderful. And the fact that, and that hopefully will keep improving, no guarantees, but that'll keep improving and compounding. And the average, and the, uh, average individual uh, were wired like squirrels to produce more than we consume and save the difference with those nuts away for the winter. Yeah. So that's going to continue, hopefully, although people have become so corrupted, you know, that uh, they don't feel like they need to save anymore. The government will take care of them. Could we go into a new dark age? Yeah, I think it's entirely possible. Humanity as a group has had two dark ages in the past. Maybe we're due for a third. I don't know. Uh, I can think of why the future could be not only better than you imagine, but better than you can imagine. I can imagine why we could go back to grubbing for roots and berries. And we could talk about why you can argue either way. So um, it, it's, it's, I, I view the election 
as a, a net positive for sure, because it shows you that people are actually willing to vote for someone that would be considered extreme, right? By, by let's say the mainstream media. So, so that's great news. But to your point, Argentina has gotten to a point where they're in crisis mode, quite literally. So yeah. it just, it, that's the unfortunate bit to me is that it seems like societies throughout history will do what's right or what's, will vote for what's going to be beneficial in the long term, but only after they have gone through a crisis and they just can't take anymore. I mean, the same thing if you want to look at Romania, right? Uh, I always use, what was it, Ceausescu, I think is the gentleman's yes. name that they brought down there. And, you know, he had been this iron dictator for 20 or 30 years and they, they brought him down, but it had to get to the point where they were in crisis mode, where they can't put a roof over their head. They can't put food on the table. It seems like human beings are very complacent. Even when the, the world is crumbling around them until there's a line in the sand that gets crossed and then they go ahead and do what needs to be done. Well, that's right. And look at the uh, look at Mao's China too. I mean, it was a primitive country up until 19 started changing earlier, but 1990 when Deng Xiaoping, you know, uh, changed things in China and it boomed. And it it happens in, in, in many places. So, that's cause for op optimism that people people do the right thing before civilization actually collapses. But here in the United States, uh, we have actual Jacobins in charge in Washington, D.C. I'm of the opinion that these people's philosophical opinions, not just their, some stupid political things they want to do, but their actual philosophical opinions are genuinely evil and destructive. And uh, they're trying to cement themselves in office the way these type of people do wherever they're elected in the world. So I don't know what's going to happen in the elections if we have them in 2024. Uh, this is going to be a wild and woolly year coming up. But in Argentina, even though all the press all around the world, everywhere, hate Malay and say, oh, crazy ultra-right, you know, these stupid disruptors don't understand what it's all about. Uh, still, maybe the people just voted for Millet because he promises radical change and they're just pissed off at this point. And, and it seemed as though in that case, social media was the great equalizer. And there's a lot of things that are wrong about social media, that's for sure. But one of its huge benefits is you can kind of circumnavigate the mainstream media. And, and, and you know, so they're not the gatekeeper anymore. And it seems like that's one of the reasons why Javier won. Yeah, I think so. And I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that despite the fact that the Argentine deep state, uh, which includes the unions and the universities and all kinds of horrible things, uh, that uh, he'll be able to uproot substantial portions of it and, um, you know, be uh, reelected when the elections come up in four years, assuming he lasts four years, of course, because these people can do horrible things in the meantime. But, uh, yeah, I'd say after 75 years of, of really incredible stupidity, 
where the Argentines have gone from one of the most prosperous countries in the world to descending into the third world, but with nice buildings. And, uh, <laughs> and nice tango music. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think they're going to have a renaissance. That's the way I'm betting anyway. We'll, we'll see. How I don't understand the political system down there. How easy or difficult is it going to be for him to implement these policies? Well, uh, they uh, it's actually not dissimilar uh, from what we have in the U.S. Okay. Uh, you, you've got, let me see, 13 provinces. I think I'm right. Uh, the governors of the provinces are much more independent than governors of U.S. states are. But it's, but it's similar. They have a bicameral parliament, uh, Congress, with a Senate and a, a House. That's similar. And uh, Millet only has like, uh, oh, 10% of the House and 15% of the Senate or something like that with the election. So it's not much. But on the other hand, when Bukele in, um, in um, El Salvador was elected, he had no representatives mm. in their registrature. And <clears throat> he's made radical changes in El right. Salvador which incidentally is the, I thought of El Salvador as the country least likely to that you want to do anything with or be or anything in all of Latin America. But he's he changed it totally. I don't know if everybody's aware of this, but he put uh, about 65,000 presumed gang members in jail in El Salvador. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't know that. This is that was huge because the major export of El Salvador, other than coffee and bananas, was gang members. MS-13 is a uh, Salvadorian institution, so he's changed that place a lot. I think that Millet could do the same. Is the answer? I think it's possible. Well, look what Pinochet did in Chile. Like I said, he turned it from a you know backward mining province with good weather to by far the most prosperous country in all of Latin America. Doug, from a philosophical view, how do you, or from a philosophical standpoint, how do you view what the guy did in El Salvador? Because to your point, he rounded up 65,000 presumed gang members, but mm. we're, we're as innocent until proven guilty. And I, I know maybe the argument is, well, it's justifiable because on net balance, it's a positive, positive for society. And I get that, but that puts you on a slippery slope that, okay, are we just going to start rounding up people that the government doesn't like? Um, you know, maybe this guy's benevolent, great, but what happens when you set a precedence and you get some guy in there that isn't? Um, and, and I don't know what's right or wrong. I just, I know that you're a philosophical guy, so you've probably thought about it. Yeah, I have. And it's, it's troubling. It's, it, it's a real problem. And I hate to say, I'd hate to advocate something like that, but um, what would I have done if I was in Bukele's? Yeah, that's that's what I always think about. I I, I try to put myself in that position and say, what would I have done? Because you you don't want to go against your principles. You don't want to. And I'm someone that believes that it's better that uh, you know 99 uh, guilty people go free than one innocent person go to prison. Uh, well, let's. Okay, so what would you do? What what I would have done, I guess, I'd hope, if I was Bukele, is 
start getting rid of all the uh, government employees that are holding down the economy there. Just wholesale, get rid of them. Uh, and get rid of the drug laws. That would have been a major thing because- Not true, yeah. That's, that's a major source of income for these gangs is drugs. They're illegal, prices go up, it's the most profitable thing in the world. Um, so free marketize that, take away their income, and if they commit common law crimes, make sure that the police round them up and put them in jail. So maybe I'd like to think I would have had to have put 50 or 60,000 people in jail, but for common law crimes that they're convicted of individually. Yeah. So I mean, I think that's the ideal way to do it. But those those gangs were like a um, were like a government were like a mafia that was actually more powerful than the government. And of course, governments are just mafias anyway. I'm an anarchist. I believe society can run well without government. I know that'll shock a lot of people uh, that are listening. How can we do things without the government? I mean, the people are so totally programmed, like uh, chimpanzees. We've got to have a we, we, we've got to have an alpha chimp telling us what to do. And Americans think that way. I mean, that's why we elect the sons and daughters of politicians, you know, some kind of magic name recognition or something like that. We need a leader. Actually, we don't need a leader. That's well, I, yeah, on this channel, you're not going to offend anybody, Doug. I, I think they see the world very similar to the way you see it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's gratifying because... You know, if you're an ANCAP that has these kind of philosophical beliefs, I mean, it's bad enough if you were, you know, with the, the U.S. being divided into blue people and red people, and they can't talk to each other. They hate each other, uh, frankly, and I understand that, why that's that's true. But it's even worse. At least they can agree, oh, but we need a government. We just need the good guys in government. And I say... No, the problem is government itself as an institution. That's the problem. I can't talk to either one of them. So, uh, yeah. But it's nice. It's nice for you to say that, George. That I'm among friends. I don't care what people think uh, of my views anyway, because one of the nice things about being older, which is unfortunately the case, and rich, is that. I can say or do whatever I want to do with them. <laughs> <laughs> <Don't care. laughs> uh, that, that reminds me, one of the funniest things I've ever seen, Doug, is when we were both in Mexico City and we were speaking at Andrew Henderson's event. And unfortunately, you had to go to the, the hospital for your foot. But uh, like the trooper you are, you still uh, gave your presentation from your hospital bed via via zoom and remember henderson put it up on the screen in front of everyone and when he did i was there uh in the green room watching your your presentation oh you didn't and I, I will never forget i think one of the first things you started with is why you love hate speech and 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 you made an argument actually in favor of hate speech and you said something and i'm paraphrasing here but you said something like, I I love hate speech because there's a lot of people in the world right now that just need to be told that you hate them. <laughs> well, that's right. Uh, 
Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, you really have to call out people uh, that are evil and tell them why you think they're evil. Yeah, that, that breaks their bubble. But there are more reasons to like hate speech. And that is, uh, if people can say whatever they want or feel, well, then you know who you're dealing with. Right. And if they don't say it, you're not sure. So, yeah, I, I, I'd say express these things. It makes for a safer and better world in many ways. doesn't matter if people are offended. Yeah, exactly. You want that out in the open so then yeah. you can debate it with better ideas. And then to your point, you can know who you're dealing with here and they're not operating in the shadows. But we're on the wrong side of history in the U.S. anyway, because, uh, you know, you have to be very careful uh, about what you say today uh, or you'll be deplatformed, uh, which has happened to any number of people for saying things that actually aren't hate speech, but just saying things which are too politically incorrect. Kanye West being a, a recent example of how extreme this has become. I mean, now you could just say there's two genders, Doug, and and a lot of people in the United States would put in that category of being an extremist. That's right. And of course, the worst places in the U.S. for this type of thing are the colleges. And this is one of the uh, the fact that the the leftists, the collectivists, the statists have totally, totally and absolutely captured uh, the educational system in the U.S., not just the colleges, but the high schools, even the grade schools. And they're indoctrinating the kids with these poisonous ideas, which once you hear an idea and from a figure of authority, well, you tend to believe it. Hey, my teacher's wise. He said this. And uh, most people, not being independent thinkers, never challenge that and, and, and grow out of it. So this is a good argument for why Western civilization is collapsing, in the U.S. in particular, but Europe and all over the West. So I'm, I'm, I'm rather pessimistic, quite frankly, about the way things are going to evolve in the future. And that's assuming we don't have World War III, which is not out of the question at all with what's going on in Israel and the Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. How do you see that evolving based on your, because I know you're a student of history and yeah. uh, these things are cyclical and we're all human beings. We're hard, you know, today's human beings are hardwired the exact same as the human beings a thousand years ago. So what do you think? I think the world's on a razor's edge, I really yeah. do, because the economies in Europe are not doing well, and the average European is not doing well. And you've heard, of course, everybody's heard, I don't know how to verify this myself, but the average American can't get together $500 if he has a serious expense, can't do it. Well, he's deeply in debt to start with, his college loans, which are an incredibly stupid allocation of capital, going to college is idiotic today, unless you need to, unless you want to learn STEM or something like that. But, you know, uh, no, I, th I think everything's on the razor's edge where everybody thinks so socialistically. And uh, did you see what happened today in, in uh, Dublin? Oh, yes. A, uh, right. a riot because the Mohammedan had stabbed a an Irishman, right? A, young Irishman. a bunch of children. Children. Yeah, well, this is a not, real... 
Yeah, I don't know if the guy was, I, I don't know what his nationality was. I don't know that they knew that this morning. Maybe they know that now. But, I mean, people are going to the streets with pitchforks and torches in Dublin, for heaven's sakes. I understand, don't know this for a fact, I'm not there, obviously, that it, it was a, a Muslim immigrant. And, uh, of course, this is the interesting thing. How stupid are the Europeans that they invite in these people of a different culture, different language, different race, different religion, different values, different everything, millions of them, millions, France, Belgium, Netherlands, Germany, all of them, or Italy, they're just overwhelmed by these people that just show up and, you know, they're fed and clothed and housed and they're not happy once they get there. I mean, it's it's like importing a time bombs into your powder keg. Yeah, it's a powder keg. And of course, now we get the now we get to the current uh, dust up between Israel and and the people of Gaza. And uh, well, what should we do about it? Well, the answer to the question is we, whoever we is, should do nothing. This is not our problem. This is between the Gaza people and the Israelis. And I wish them both well. I do. I wish them both well but not my problem, and in fact, the U.S. can only make things worse by sticking its nose in there the way it does everywhere. Yeah, the way it does Ukraine-Russia. Oh, yeah. No, crazy. Same thing. I mean, if the U.S. is basically at fault in the in the uh, war between uh, the Ukraine and Russia. It really is. I mean, we can, we can talk about, you know, how it really started and what's the background for it. I'll tell you. Let's, let's go back to the world. Let's go back to the world being on razor's edge because I think everyone would agree. And we haven't even talked about China, Thailand. I mean, you could. There, there's there's so many um, fuses that have been lit globally right now. Um, and let's not even talk about the economic. You know, the the yield curve being inverted uh, for the last whatever uh, sixteen months, and what that usually means for the global economy and the U.S. economy. And, you know, we go into a recession and that's only going to make things uh, much worse. But where there's a crisis, there's equal opportunity. And uh, you've made a lot of money throughout the years in crisis investing. So when you look at everything that's going on geopolitically, when you look at what's going on in the United States, when you look at the inversion of the yield curve, how are you looking at that, you know, putting on your crisis investing cap? Well, okay. Uh once again, to establish the context, I believe that many major civilizational values, this is very like Oswald Spengler kind of stuff, I know, uh, but uh, have been going downhill for a long time. Um, I think some years ago, we entered into what I call the Greater Depression, which is right. a period of time when most people's standard of living drops significantly. Now, uh, people can kind of feel it in the air, but it won't be recognized until we have a collapse of uh, one or more markets. Bond market, well, that's already largely collapsed, but it's got a lot, lot, a lot further to fall, and the bond market is the biggest market out there. People have already lost a lot of money in bonds. The real estate market, which is built on a pyramid of debt as interest rates go up and they will go up further 
uh, that's in a lot of trouble because everything is financed. Not much is owned for cash commercially, and that's happening. Now, I don't know if you heard that in Washington, D.C., there was a building which last traded hands at $70 million. Oh, yeah. It's traded hands for like $25 million. That's, that's Yeah, it's even worse than that in San Francisco. Mm, big haircuts. So, you know, and this is going to augur poorly for banks' balance sheets and all this type of thing. Anyway, uh, I've gotten off to it. So what should you do now? Well, in, in specific countries, do you, you talked about Venezuela. Uh, we talked about Argentina. Maybe there's some crisis, crisis investing opportunities there. Um, I don't know about uh, the Middle East or in Eastern Europe. Uh, you seem to have your finger on the pulse of this stuff. Yeah, look, in Eastern Europe, we were in the Ukraine. I went to the Ukraine. When did I go there? I don't know, like 2016 or something like that. Anyway. Uh, we were looking at getting involved in a real estate deal there. That would have been a bad idea. I didn't do it. Uh, a few years before that, I did get involved in a real estate deal in Cairo, which is a, now this is a whole whole different thing where you talk about, um, this was with a friend of mine who made a fortune uh, in New York when they, um, buying up apartments that were rent-controlled and then turned into condominiums. Well, he was going to do the same mm. thing in Cairo, which has some very nice areas, incidentally. Well, it never happened. Anyway, I'm always looking at at these kind of crazy deals all around the world. But here's, this, here's, the, here's the bottom line. And I think people would like, I'll, I'll just give you my opinion right now. I think this is a time that Richard Russell, who was... Uh, a really smart guy used to write a newsletter called the Dow Theory Reports. He's dead now. But, um, and this goes back to what I was saying about the Greater Depression. And Richard said that uh, when a, uh, in a depression, everybody loses money. And we can explain why that's true. But the winner is the person that loses the least. So now is the time just to make sure that you all your assets, all of them are going to go down in value. Yes, of course, some are going to go up, and you hope you get lucky with some of them. But uh, what you want to do is <clears throat> rig for heavy weather, and that means I don't want to own bonds. They're the kiss of death. They're a triple threat to your capital. Uh, we can talk about why I say a triple threat. I don't want to own stocks. Uh, yes, I can... So why in the long run, people will panic into them because they're at least real wealth. Yeah, I know. But right now, they're way too expensive, not interested. Uh, real estate, just talked about that. It's still in a bubble. We're still in the end of a bubble economy. So for many, many years, since the early 70s, I've been buying gold coins. I buy them. I put them away. I forget they exist forget they exist, but keep buying them. And it's treated me very well because from $42 an ounce when the when you could first buy them legally, uh, bullion-type coins, to $2,000, well, it's they've done pretty well. It's a savings vehicle. Now, and there's going to be a panic into gold. So I'm, I'm a gold bull. Only financial asset that's not simultaneously somebody else's liability. And all this paper is going to dry up and blow away. Uh, but 
okay, you want to speculate. Well, what do you buy? Okay, you don't want to own just 100% gold. Make sure that you get significant assets out of your home country because your biggest risk in the world, your, your financial risks are huge. Right. But political risks are even more huge. Mm. So diversify politically. And how do you do that? Well, the best way is to buy property in a different country so that if the U.S. turns into a police state, which is entirely possible, or has a civil war of some description, which is entirely possible, you've got a crib to go to. And uh, I think Argentina right now is a really good choice uh, because it's really, really cheap and things are going the right way and so forth. So you want to so diversify politically, buy some, buy a house or real estate someplace else. And, and so what's the other speculation? Commodities you are know, so cheap. Yeah, you, but you know what, Doug? I was doing some research last night. I saw that lithium and coal are down massively this mm-hmm. last year. I mean, it's a proper crash. Uh, lithium is down. It's not back down to the level that we saw in like March of 2020. But uh, both of those commodities are getting pretty close. And so I'm someone that's very bullish on coal long-term, pretty much all commodities. You know, I think we're in a commodity super cycle. It just never goes up in a straight line. Yeah. Um, so I'm always looking for an uh, opportunity to get in. And especially if we have a recession in 2024 or a hard landing, whatever you want to call it, you know, most likely commodity prices, right or wrong, will come down. And that gives you a good opportunity. But with lithium, which if you're a believer in the whole electrification and Tesla and all this stuff, uh, then you, you've got to be a believer long-term in copper and lithium and other things like that. And then coal, I just absolutely love because I always love the thing that people hate the most. And <laughs> yeah, you're spot on, uh, George. And I'm very big in coal too, uh, especially Australian coal stocks where it's possible to get 15, even 20% in current dividends. Yeah. Coal, as cheap as it is, it's going to go up. And and oil, uh, there are Canadian uh, oil and gas, well, Petro Brazil, uh, I'm a big owner of that, uh, is yielding, the yield fluctuates, but it's yielding 15 to 20%, Petrobras. uh, And in Colombia, I don't know if you own any uh, Echo Petrol. I don't. Well, that's yielding about twenty percent, also, and wow. and as stupid as Josh, write that down really quick. <laughs> well, and, well, and as and as idiotic as the current president of Colombia is, uh, I don't think for a number of reasons he's going to be able to screw up Colombia too bad. So, and I think oil's going to go way up for a lot of reasons. So, look at that, and there are certain Canadian. A lot, quite a few in Alberta, uh, Canadian oil and especially gas companies that are yielding eh, six, eight, ten percent in dividends. Dividends are nice, but they're going to go up with those um, with those um, those uh, price of underlying commodity. Exactly. So coal, oil, and gas, and gold stocks. Now this is interesting because um, uh, when when I talk to um, I talked to a lot of them, I promise you, a lot. Big deal uh, money manager, investors, and all this kind of stuff. Most of them think that anybody that's involved in commodities, A, but gold in particular, B, has got to be an idiot. 
Uh, so, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, uh, gold stocks have been very, very good to me. And there's a reason for that, uh, a number of reasons for it. But one of them is that it's a teeny weeny subsector of the, uh, of the market, really, really small. Nobody likes them. Well, they hate coal worst. Coal is hated the worst. And yeah. of course, oil is hated like second worst because you might recall back in the early 80s, 25%, uh, and you can look this up. This is, this is, not, uh, this is not a hidden fact. 25% of the S&P was energy, oil, basically. Now it's like 3 or 3% 3 or something like that. So nobody's interested in oil. Nobody wants any oil. Uh, and, and gold, uh, it, it's it's the same thing. So uh, mining is a crappy industry. It's a 19th century choo-choo train industry. Mining is much worse as a business than oil is. But uh, I think now, but the gold companies are really, really cheap. Like there's one you have, and here, here's one for you. We're talking about Columbia. The largest gold mining company in Colombia is Aris Gold, A-R-I-S, and it's traded on the NYSE. And uh, here's something for you. Produces 200,000 ounces a year, which is good. But to be a big boy gold company, you got to produce a billion ounces a year because the world produces about 80 million. <clears throat> and um, it's selling it, get this, four times earnings mm. and I'm familiar with this company because I visited it 30 years ago. I visited the properties that this company owns. Anyway, here's why I own a lot of it now. Not only is it very cheap, but it's basically been taken under the wing of uh, uh, a very old friend of mine named Frank Juster, who's a very wealthy and very smart guy. And he's done this before a number of times along with Ian Telfer, another old buddy who's done this. These guys are like serial, serially successful. They're like slotish that win, you know, the broken slot machines. And so they basically control Eris and Columbia, and people don't like it. Why is it selling at four times earnings? Because it's expanding to a million ounce this is production. And Frank thinks this is... You know, this isn't inside information. This is just speculation. He says, look, if we do what we expect to do, by 2026, uh, we're going to have earnings that are going to be more than the current price of the stock. Mm. Well, that's what he thinks. That's what he's going to try to do. So, you know, I'll, I'll bet on it. And, of course, everybody hates Columbia stocks because you've got a moron for president there at the moment. He's a communist, basically. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. 
So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Have you followed the elections recently here, Doug? Hmm? Have you followed the elections, the local elections? The, the reason I say that, is you might find it interesting, that to your point, they elected Petro, whatever that was, nine months ago, something like that, just a, a crazy socialist. Um, but there's been a lot of backlash against his policies. And we just had elections locally here in Medellin, and I believe uh, throughout Colombia, uh, you know, for the mayors and, and whatnot. And pretty much every single one of them swung all the way back to the right. Uh, it, it's just kind of backlash against Petro because the people, you know, they elected him. They might have voted for him, but they already hate him. And uh, so hopefully they're getting some sanity back. Ah, that's very interesting and very gratifying. And I don't own uh, Echo Petrol, which is the national oil company of uh, Colombia. But like I said, it's a very high dividend yielder, like on the order of 20% and a lot of reasons to own it. So yeah, yeah, that's very, that's very gratifying and interesting too. Uh, yeah, that could be an opportunity because I guess I would assume that it's yielding such a high dividend because the share price has come down so dramatically because of Petro. But if yes. you've got some insider information there, like I do, uh, where you can see kind of boots on the ground, people leaning the other direction, then there's less of a risk that Petro does anything damaging or gets elected for a second term. And that might not be priced in by the market. That could be an opportunity. Yeah, it's very, I think it's very underrated by by the market. And the big fund managers have it, have it wrong because everybody's supposed to hate oil and gas right now because we're going to electrify. Well, incidentally, we may electrify, but all this wind and solar stuff, I think it's nice for special applications in special places. Nothing wrong with it. But they're trying to run an industrial civilization on wind and solar. It's not going to work for all kinds of reasons we could talk about. It's going to be a disaster, uh, quite frankly. So I'm not that optimistic about lithium. It's fine. Uh, uh, copper and things like that. That's a different situation because uh, I'm, I am i got to be bullish on, on things like copper and nickel, uranium. Of course, I own a lot of uranium uh, plays because you're, because nuclear is the safest, the cheapest, and the cleanest form of mass power generation that exists. And it should get much better if, but it's so political. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Doug, have you been to St. Bart's? I never have. I understand it's very nice. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, I've, I, I, I'm surprised. It, it, I've been there three or four times now, and it is definitely a place that you would enjoy. I can I can promise you that you would absolutely love St. Bart's. I first started going there in 2020 because I got locked down in Columbia, and I wanted nothing to do with the lockdowns. So, but it was very difficult to get out of the country. I tried to charter a jet. I tried to charter a boat. Uh, absolutely nothing would work. So they actually had these humanitarian flights. So I was able to get on a humanitarian flight to uh, Fort Lauderdale, and uh, pr just prior to that, I was looking 
around the world and trying to find any place that just had some sanity. And so I was texting a good buddy of mine, a former hedge fund manager named Hugh Hendry, and he lives in St. Bart's. And I knew it was such a very small island, a lot like Monaco in the Caribbean. And yes. I said, hey, are things, are things open there? And he said, well, yeah, almost like he wasn't paying attention to the news. And and he was like, like, why are you asking? <laughs> oh, like, well, there's a thing called COVID. And I asked, are the gyms open there? And he kind of laughed and said, you mean the gym? Yes, it's open. So anyway, I got to St. Bart's as quickly as I could. And uh, just because I wanted to continue to live my life. And I ended up staying there for about two or three months. And then, like I said, I've gone back periodically. But it, it's kind of a mecca for hedge fund managers, Wall Street types, investment bankers, and a lot of the guys that kind of flew under the radar in the 1980s and 1990s, because I'm sure you can attest to this. Back then, the guys that had the best returns on Wall Street, the hedge fund types, they were very secretive. They, they, they were not the guys that you'd see on CNBC. They were the guys that you wanted to keep a super low profile. They didn't want you knowing what they were doing. Yeah. And um, they didn't want to raise money. They had plenty of money. That's right. And, and they wanted to maintain their edge. And they and remember, they would never do interviews. I remember reading the first Market Wizards book by Jack Schwager. And I remember him talking on several interviews how hard it was just to get the guy to do like a 10 or 15 minute interview on on record. And um, I think Bruce Kovner comes to mind. He would be one of those. Do you, do you remember him? No, well, it, it, I don't. I don't run in those. I don't run in those circles. Yeah, but the bottom line is, a lot of these guys retire or and or spend a lot of time in St. Bart's. <laughs> so I was I so heard such fantastic things about St. Bart's, though. It's uh, so you really like it, right? I love it. I mean, it's got this little teeny town, if you want to call it that, called Gustavia. It's very similar to Monaco. I mean, the shops, you know, you got your Louis Vuitton, your Gucci, your Dolce Gabbana, but then it's all French. But what's great about these French people, they're born and raised on the island. So not only are they incredibly good at cooking, but they're also very pleasant, uh, unlike the French in, <laughs> in Europe. They could be a, a little unruly, right? So they're very, very pleasant people. The food is fantastic. The shopping's great. They've got 22 beaches. You can drive from one side of the island to the other in about 15 minutes. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely awesome. But Hugh was nice enough to introduce me to all these financial types. Yeah. And so I've become pretty good friends with a lot of these guys that were major players in uh, the hedge fund industry in the early 2000s and the 1990s. And they they did a lot with emerging markets. But one gentleman in particular, I never use his name because he kind of likes to go under the radar. But we, we've been in some very in-depth conversations. And I'm always trying to, and I always welcome the stories from, you know, when he was doing this in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. Last time I was there, just a couple weeks ago, uh, we were discussing kind of the philosophy behind investing well and speculating well. And one of the things that he told me that, that he kind of pinpointed over the years as to, uh, or an observation that he made, is pretty much every one of the best investments or speculations he made, he said from a psychological standpoint, was the hardest to buy. So as an example, 
in 2020, you know, March, uh, oil got under 20 at, at one point. It was negative $38 a barrel because everyone thought the world was coming to an end. Now, in hindsight, we know that that was a fantastic buying opportunity. But at the time, if you would have told someone that you were buying an energy company or oil, they would have told you that you're absolutely out of your mind. Even someone that was bullish on commodities, it would still be very, very difficult to have the mental discipline to actually hit the bid and, and to buy. And it's the same thing with real estate, 2012. That's I, I, my, my family members were telling me that I was absolutely out of my mind to buy single family homes in 2012 because don't you know, George, the price of real estate is gonna go down forever. And it, when he said that, and so he started his career in Japan and then he, this was in the late eighties. So he rode that boom up and he rode the bus. Then he went to San Francisco for the dot-com, rode that bubble up and down. He was making money on both sides. Then he got involved with the GFC and buying houses. Then he got involved with commodities in 2020. And then, and, and then he rode the crypto bubble as well. But that was an observation that he had made. Now he's to the point where he's so experienced that it's not difficult anymore because he knows he's right or he knows that the probability is very high that he's right. But for the retail investors that are watching this, kind of the average Joe and Jane, ha have you had that same observation over your career? And if so, from a psychological standpoint, how do you maintain that discipline to know that now's the right time to buy? And regardless of how crazy the world seems, I'm gonna go in and pull the trigger. Yeah, well, this is one of the, I'm not a chartist. I don't believe in the predictive value of heads and shoulders and all this type of thing that uh, the chartists have. But I do watch charts because it gives you an idea of whether something's relatively cheap or dear to where it's been in the past. Right. And um, I can't help myself when something looks like it's collapsed and fallen a lot. Uh, and that's one thing from an ob kind of objective point of view. The second thing is my own psychology, which like everybody's psychology varies with fear and greed and so forth. But yes, you've got to buck up and, well, Lord Buffett has said this and he's so right. He says, uh, be afraid when others are bold and bold when others are afraid. And that's, that is so true because the markets are all a matter of psychology yeah and economics of course i mean you don't want to you don't want to buy into a, a crappy company that maybe it's lost 90 percent because it deserves to lose that it's gonna lose another 90 percent but everything else being well yeah you're absolutely right george so yeah right now the fact that you're in coal and i'd suggest you look at uranium and and oil and gas and and gold mining stocks, which are very different from gold as an investment. Those are the places I am anyway. And Argentina. But I've been there for I've been there for years and finally I'll be proven right. Uh, <laughs> I hate to wait. You hate to wait be wrong for twenty years. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I don't know if that's a, something that you ought to admit in public, but it's a Right. Well, it's coming around now. That's for sure. One of the thought experiments that he challenged me to is, is he said, George, what would be the hardest thing for you to buy right now? Because that is what most likely should be the top thing on your watch list. Mm -hmm. So I, I actually thought about it and I said, 
we'll call the guy Steve. I said, you know, Steve, the hardest thing for me to pull the trigger on right now would probably be commercial real estate in the United States. Mm. And he said, there you go. That, that should, he said, I'm not saying buy. He said, that's definitely something that should be on your watch list. So what do you think about that? Do you think the price of these office buildings could get so low in the United States that even Doug Casey would think about pulling the trigger? I, well, you don't want to catch a falling safe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, the, the trend is downwards is still in motion, I think for a lot of good reasons. So it's getting interesting, but, uh, not yet. I wouldn't buy it because there haven't been massive, scary bankruptcies all over the place, and there haven't been yeah, yeah. banks failing because they're loans to the real. So it's yeah, it's happening, but uh, I don't want to be premature. I learned that lesson from Argentina, if you would. Yeah. So for is it fair to say that one of the catalysts that you use in speculating when you're trying to you know think about it through crisis investing? is you want to look for absolute panic and capitulation. Yeah, that would be ideal to find that. Something that, you know, it, it used to, there used to be, it was called the uh, front cover illustrator, where all you oh, yeah. really needed for investment was to go to a grocery store and look at the magazines and see what they were talking about. But you knew what the public was excited about and do the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but they don't sell magazines very much anymore. So, but yeah, we can. You know, one of the benefits that I have is doing the news every single day on this channel. Is I get to see what the narrative is. It's just you're, you're constantly in the mix, and sometimes it's kind of mixed, like you don't really know. But at other times, the the mainstream media and the financial media can be on one side of the boat, and it is completely obvious. You know, like back uh, six months ago, they're all on the recession side of the boat when Silicon Valley Bank was going bust and Credit mm. Suisse. And now all of a sudden they're way on the other side of the boat with no landing, soft landing. So it, it, it's so what's true. Your, what's, your, what's your opinion as to where we are right now? What do you think? I just go back to the yield curve and I kind of use that as my North Star because I think those interest rates tell you pretty much everything that you need to know. I think those are the most powerful economic indicator that we have. You know, what is the 10-year trading at relative to Fed funds or relative to the one-month treasury? And if you go back in time, you see that pretty much every single time you get this steep inversion, it doesn't end well. In fact, I was talking to Jeff Snyder earlier this morning, and, you know, he's a historian on this stuff. He studies it nonstop. And I said, have we ever had an uninversion of the curve as a result of a bear steepener? And meaning that uh, we got the curve inverted. And have we ever come out of that inversion by the long end of the curve going up? And he said, not that I can remember. So what this means is that the only time we've had an uninversion is when the front end goes down. Well, that also means that the only time we've had an uninversion is when the Fed drops rates. Well, why do they drop rates? Not because the uh, the inflation has come back down to their 2% target. They drop rates because the stuff hits the fan and because we have this hard landing. So a soft landing or no landing, if you look at it historically, it's not even a thing. It, 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 the only thing you could say is that a soft landing is simply the transition between growth and contraction. 
like that that's it that's it but we but so why this um inversion would play out any differently uh, i don't know and we had the long end going up you know the uh, 10 year went up to almost 5% and then we had this narrative that it's supply 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 of treasury and that's absolutely true but now look at the uh, the yield going all the way back down the other day it was 4.36 so when you've got all this supply coming online through the deficits and Janet Yellen and whatnot, and you have the interest rate on the 10-year going from 5% all the way down to 4.3%, which, by the way, is almost 100 basis points lower than Fed funds, what is the 10-year tr- telling you about what it's predicting the economy is going to look like in 2024? I mean, it, 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 that is not, that's, that's a red flag if I ever saw one. So that's kind of my base case right now. All right, there certainly is. Uh, I think it's even worse than that, actually, because they say, I don't know what they say inflation is right now. What do they say? It's, they say it's like 5% or what? This is now, it's like mid threes right now, according well, to the headline CPI. I, I, you know, I, I, I pay about as much attention to these manipulated numbers as I do to what the Argentines say their inflation is. I mean, yeah. It's all it's all lies that if they calculated inflation and all kinds of things the way they did uh, in the early 1980s, the numbers would be very different from what they are right now. Yes, so, they'd probably be similar to the 70s. And they probably they probably would be. So, you know, people remember what Roosevelt said, uh, kind of idiotically. He says the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Uh, so they say, they think that, well, on the one hand, the markets are all a matter of psychology, but, you know, reality is not entirely a matter of psychology. Uh, I, I think it's, I think it's going to be really, really grim. It's like, I hate to use that hackneyed phrase, uh, it's become hackneyed, uh, a perfect storm. Yeah, right. Everything from every angle is lining up for it total disaster but the markets are still up there because that's one thing that the fed can still kind of do is they can look people forget that in japan and hong kong in particular that was the big one the the authorities bought stocks to hold up the market when when things happened and i think they're going to do that here too yeah in effect nationalize the economy and people will love it because yeah. they'll hold stock prices up. I mean, this is all perverse. It's it's heading for a disaster. It's the type of thing you can really only talk about uh, in a novel, in fiction, as opposed to writing a predictive nonfiction book about, you know, it was one thing when I wrote Crisis Investing back in 1979, but writing a book like that today it would sound like science fiction, so why not go the whole way and write fiction? And I've done that with three books, which I think are pretty good. Whether I write any more or not is an open question. Because Yeah, I, I know I've kept you for over an hour, Doug, and I appreciate your time. So can you tell us about your the, the books that you have and where people can get those books? Well, uh, three, it's supposed to be a, a, a septet. Of, of novels 
trace the history of our hero, Charles Knight, from being a young man to making a lot of money to, to taking over a country to, in the final book, well, it'll never get written, uh, probably. But uh, its uh, first book is called Speculator, where he gets lucky in a, uh, a mining stock, goes to Africa to uh, check it out, gets involved in a revolution with boy soldiers and all that type of thing. And it's a pretty good adventure book. It has a lot of good information in it. And then, after being abroad for seven years, because he's persona non grata, it's kind of dangerous for him to be in the U.S. at that point, he uh, gets involved in the drug business, both legal and illegal drugs, and makes another fortune. And this time, he gets into more trouble. And they put him in jail for two years, which is kind of interesting. And that's where the third book, Assassin, opens, where he decides... There are some people that just need killing. <laughs> and uh, so it goes into that, and that's an excellent book, too. So all three books are available on Amazon. And the next book is Terrorist. I have a lot of opinions on terrorism as a method of warfare, uh, but that's in the future, uh, maybe. But uh, your, re your listeners don't want to fall too far behind and get those three novels I promised they're in for a very entertaining reading. I've got a selfish question for you, Doug. If you were starting over today, what, what, how old were you when you wrote uh, Crisis Investing? Uh, well, my first book was actually The International Man. Oh, that, that's right. That's right. How, how old were you then? Uh, let me think. It must have been 1976, so I would have been 30 when I wrote 30. that book. Yeah. So if you were 30 years old today, would you allocate your time to writing a book or starting a YouTube channel podcast? I don't think people really read books anymore, quite frankly. You can use them as the modern-day equivalent of business cards. People don't have business cards anymore, really. Not really. Right. The way they used to. And if you give people a book as opposed to a business card, they won't throw it away the way... They throw business cards away <laughs> if anybody used them, which they don't. So, yeah, you should write a book because if you can, because, and, and, and there's a million and a half books published every year. It used to be in the old days, there were 50,000. Now there's a million and a half. Wow. Way too many of them. And most of them are crap. So, Pareto's Law, 80% of everything is crap. Yeah. Anyway, to answer the question, if you, if you're really knowledgeable uh, and you can write a book worth reading, write a book. It's a good idea for lots of reasons. But if you want to become well-known and get the word out, what you're doing now, this this is the way to do it. Mm -hmm. I, that's what I think. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your insights there for sure, Doug. All right. Well, it, do you have anything else that you'd like to tell the community about? Uh, are you going to be anywhere as far as speaking engagements, or is it just the books? I'm happy to let you promote anything. Yeah, well, no, I don't like going. As we were talking about before we got on the air, I, what's the point of going someplace? Of, yeah, no, not probably not. You know, if I want to say something, I can say it on 
something like this if I feel like it. So no, and um, promoting anything. I like people to buy those three novels because they're really good. And um, what else? Oh, I know. I almost forgot. You can use more hate speech. Yes, of course. <laughs> I, I, wait a minute. I just, I almost forgot, George. I mean, this just goes to show. I mean, I've, I've become like an anti-promoter in recent years, which is stupid. But um, uh, a friend of mine in New Zealand and I, uh, Dave Henderson, we've started a uh, something called ANCAP Radio, which mm. is on, on we're going to make it bigger. It's uh, on, um, what is that? It's on, it's that thing Tucker Carlson's on? Twitter. Twitter. X or yeah. whatever the hell you want to call it. Yeah, exactly. That's Yeah, exactly. So it, we're doing a radio show on that uh, so people can find it, ANCAP Radio on Twitter or X. And we hope to make it big. Like we're giving a, away a monthly prize of $1,000 to the mm -hmm. person who does the most to promote proper values in the world. That's another story. People can go there and find out about it, monthly prize. Uh, other thing, I have a podcast I do with Matt Smith weekly, bi-weekly, called Doug Casey's Take on YouTube and other yeah. places. Cause Josh is actually putting that in the chat. Oh, good, because we were kicked off of uh, YouTube for a while. We had three strikes, and we got one redo. So we're back on YouTube. And uh, the third thing we do Oh, I know. It's internationalman.com. And it's really a good free blog where we have really great articles every week, including one by me, where I say things that shock and disgust a lot of people. So <laughs> the three things in addition to the books. All right, Doug. Well, thank you very much for your time. I, I value your insights uh, tremendously. And when I first uh, retired in 2012, you were the one of the people that I really, really looked up to, and uh, you know, indirectly just by watching your your interviews and whatnot. And uh, you've had a massive influence on uh, the way I think and and on my life, quite frankly. So, uh, again, thank you for that. Well, I really appreciate that, George. That that means a lot to me coming from you. And uh, we'll have to do this again because it was a fun chat. I enjoyed Absolutely. talking. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll do it again soon. Okay. Have a good day, huh?